I want to thank Audible for sponsoring today's episode of Motley Fool Answers. You might want to check out Ponzi Supernova. It's a six-part original series about Bernie Madoff and the $65 billion fraud he pulled off. It's available on Audible channels. Listen at audible.com slash Ponzi. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. We also have special guest Ross Anderson. He's visiting from Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of The Motley Fool. And he's joining us because this is an all-mailbag episode, and we're focusing on mortgages and buying a home and all that fun stuff. So we'll discuss whether or not buying a home is even a good idea to begin with, and we'll answer your questions about using retirement accounts to buy a home, setting up priorities, etc., etc. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Owning a home is something we tend to aspire to as we grow up. It's a sign to everyone that you are successfully adulting. (laughs) For most people, their house is their largest expense and their largest tangible asset. It's probably the biggest purchase you're ever going to make in your life. Kind of a big deal. So, we've asked Ross Anderson, financial planner with Motley Fool Wealth Management, a sister company of the Motley Fool, to join us to answer your questions around home ownership. Ross, thank you for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. Do you own a home? I do. Oh, great. I okay. Do. Now, bro, if I remember correctly, when we did the Fullywed game a few weeks ago, yeah. your wife said that one or two houses were the worst financial decisions you two had ever made. Yes, because we've bought too many. We've had, I don't even want to admit it, but we've bought too many houses in the course of our marriage. So, definitely, I have very mixed feelings about home buying, and I'm sure that will come out as we answer some of our listeners' questions. Do you guys just like moving a lot, or, or were they investments? She who doesn't I, love moving. I, 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 I don't know if she's listening. She likes moving a lot more than I do. How about that? Okay. And I think also, um, education plans evolved for our kids as they grew up, and that was a big part of it, too, just moving to a different area in terms of schools. But Yeah. 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 And how about you, Russ? Do you regret buying your house? Uh, not at all. Uh, I bought in 2012, mm-hmm. and uh, so far the market I'm in has done pretty well. Uh, and and certainly, uh, I'm sure what we'll get into as part of this today is just that it, it's a great way to lock down your living expenses. So while I've got friends that have rents that are rising, uh, I'm very happy with a fixed payment, and uh, that's that's not a bad reason to have one. And you get to make changes to your house, like tile over the phone jacks. Right, Ross? That's true. You tiled That's true. over your phone jacks? Well, I, I didn't. My tile guy did, though. Oh. He's like, he doesn't need this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it would have been fine, because I actually don't have a landline phone. I'm, I'm all cell phone. Uh, and the, the thing that we didn't realize is that our internet all runs on that phone line. And mm-hmm. so, when you cut it and just push it back into the wall without like connecting it to anything, mm-hmm. uh, we were without internet for two weeks. And then I had to saw into the back of the drywall just to get the phone line back out and fix the internet. So. <laughs> Sounds so, like you were really handy, I'm, though. I'm sorry to the Verizon guy that had to come troubleshoot my phone jack being tiled over. That's so funny. Just be like, nah, cord doesn't need it. But basically, yeah. He was like, did you have any work done? And I was like, oh, no. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the questions, shall we? Let's do that. First one comes from Tom. Tom writes, I have heard Bro mention a few times that mortgages are not the tax benefit they are made out to be. Indeed, I use the standard deduction and am rethinking my mortgages, especially with investment returns so low these days. Right now, I have two mortgages, one on a Japanese property, which I personally would love to go check out. So, if you need anyone to come and visit, 
Uh, I'd be happy to do that. At a variable rate of 1.92, and another in the U.S. at a 30-year fixed 4.5%. I have no other debt and have maxed out my IRA and 401k. Would it make sense to pay down the mortgage and invest in a low-cost index fund where I park most of my money? Good stuff. Keep it up, Tom. Well, Tom, thanks for paying attention to my scintillating discussions of standard deductions, because the reason I have brought that up in the past is that many people make the argument that you should keep your mortgage or buy a house because of the tax benefits. You can write off the mortgage interest. The thing is, vast majority of people actually don't do that, because we automatically get a standard deduction. And in 2017, it's 6350 if you're single, twice that, 12700 if you're married, even higher if you're 65 or older. So, really, the value of the deduction, the mortgage, is only to the extent it exceeds that. And something like 80% of people don't take the standard deduction because while they have mortgage interest, it's not enough to deduct all that. So, that's the first point there. The other point that I would like to point out is that, first of all, you've got your ducks in a row. So, you're already maxing out your retirement accounts, which I think is great. If someone is thinking about paying off their mortgage but isn't maxing out their retirement accounts, especially if they're not taking full advantage of an employer match, I would say take care of that first. Um, I don't have much insight into Japanese mortgages or anything like that. Ross, you have any thoughts on whether he should pay them <laughs> off or not? Poor well, Ross. <laughs> this is, we brought you here so broken punt all the really tough questions to you. That's okay. So, Ross, Japanese mortgage rates go. Well, <laughs> what do you know? Yeah, so 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 I don't have much prediction power there, but but what I I did notice about his question is that it's a variable rate mortgage. Right. Uh, and, and so that that's always a little bit of a risk that that those rates could increase and and likely will increase because we're in pretty much historical uh, historically low interest rates across the globe. So, so that will probably rise on you over time. Uh, so, depending on on how long you think you're going to own that property, it might make sense to look for for a fixed product there. Um, if you think you're going to be in it for a while or, or or have that on your books for a long time, but the the ultimate question that you're asking is where is the better place to put money at a paying paying down debt that's at four and a half percent, which is like getting a a guaranteed four and a half percent growth on on the money that you put into it. Or investing in an index fund, which is going to be a lot more uncertain, uh, but certainly has a lot more upside potential, uh, especially depending on the time. And and so that's uh, kind of a bird in the hand uh, sort of right. question of of do you, are you more comfortable with the certainty of knowing what your your return is going to be, or are you comfortable with with the stock market over long periods of time and, and being willing to roll the dice a little bit? I will say for anyone who is getting close to retirement, I think there's a huge value in putting extra money to paying down the mortgage. Because um, I don't think a lot of people appreciate how much your spending in retirement is related to your taxes. So let's say, for example, you go into retirement and you have a thousand dollar monthly mortgage. You're paying twelve thousand dollars a year for that mortgage. Where's that money going to come from? Everything, many, all the money you spend in retirement has to come out of an account, or you have to sell assets, which dries up your tax return. If you have to take out twelve thousand dollars from your traditional IRA to pay off that mortgage, and you're in the twenty five percent tax bracket, you've just increased your tax bill by three thousand dollars. Tax time comes around. Where are you going to get that three thousand dollars? You have to take more money out of your traditional IRA. That drives up your tax bill by seven hundred and fifty dollars. Where are you going to get that? So, kind of in the end, this can cost you a lot in taxes just by having those extra expenses. So, should it be a goal for someone to have their house paid off before they enter retirement? It, for me personally, I think it's a great goal to have, and it's something I'm trying to do. So, so I, I kind of well, would the, stop like swapping houses every I, couple of years. You might actually that, be able to that do that. That would it. help. Yeah, I, I take the other side of that point quite a bit, which is that I, I think 
uh, retirement is is in many cases a cash flow problem. Uh, and and you're right. If you have all IRA or all pre-tax money when you enter retirement, you've got no flexibility there. But his alternative is really to build a taxable account, which isn't going to have that that huge tax increase. He might have some capital gains tax if he's selling uh, an appreciated fund or, or stocks that he's buying. Uh, but he's got a lot more flexibility if he's got some after-tax money or or something that's not in that IRA and 401k. And I see a lot of folks anchor to those limits that they put on your IRA. They say, okay, I put my uh, or, or the 401k, I put my 18,000 in for the year, or I go to my, my employer match, I did everything I'm supposed to do. That's kind of an arbitrary number based on the tax law. It's maybe not the right number for your savings yeah. goals. Uh, so, so doing a financial plan or, or projecting what your actual lifestyle costs you and, and how much you should be saving to, to recreate that uh, is, is also a helpful exercise as you're doing that math. All right, bottom line for Tom. What's the bottom line for Tom? Well, it's a tough one. It really depends on how much he want, he values that certain 4.5% return versus trying to get a little bit more. Just based on how he phrases question, I'm going to say it's more likely for him to lean towards paying down the mortgage because that seems sort of important to him. Next question comes from Mike. I'm 36 years old and have always made about 35,000 per year. I have little savings and no investments currently. I recently made a career change and my wife will graduate with her MBA this year. Congrats, Mike's Yay. wife. The result is that our combined income will be closer to 350,000 per year. Wow. Not too shabby. We also have about 100,000 in student debt at 5.8%. Woof. This is getting this is getting exciting, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering where our priorities should be in terms of savings, investment, building retirement accounts, debt, saving for a house down payment, and taxes, as I'm basically starting from zero. We rent and plan on maintaining our lifestyle for the near future, but would like to buy in the next few years. Thanks, Mike. Well, so my first thought is he's going to be in a very high tax bracket, and he's behind his retirement savings. So the first place for your money, I would say, is a traditional 401k. If both of you could max that out, that's a great tax break. Plus, that gets you going on your retirement savings. That's the first part. Um, the other part, personally, based sort of on my previous discussion of my own home purchasing, I would say settle into your new job and your new career first. Get used to whatever location you are and, and your new lifestyle, and then decide on the whole buying, home buying decision. But part of the question for him also might be, do you devote extra money to paying down that debt or saving for the house? And that's a tougher one. Yeah, I mean, so, so the, the the biggest risk here is, is lifestyle creep. Um, and and uh, Mike mentions that he's, he's planning on maintaining the lifestyle for the near future, which is going to be really tough to do. Yeah. Uh, really tough to do. Yeah. When you're making 10x the money uh, to, to keep your spending as it has been, uh, I would say is borderline impossible, but but certainly something that you should aspire to and, and could aspire to. Well, what if he uh, really likes ramen noodles? Well, and maybe they'll keep eating it five nights a week. I mean, the beautiful thing about this situation. So so if they both maxed out four hundred one k's, you take the three fifty, uh, and, and now we're basically at a little north of three ten taxable. Let's call it a, an effective tax rate of like thirty percent, depending on what state he's in. They've probably got enough money coming in, even with maxed out four hundred one k's, to pay off the entire student loan debt and still start a little housing fund in the first year, yeah. which yeah. is a tremendous. How fast he could potentially do that if yeah. they can keep right. those lifestyle expenses from from creeping up. So, so I think that certainly uh, managing the tax rate is going to be important there. Um, and and it's at five point eight percent on the student debt. I think it should be a priority to get that paid down pretty quickly. Um, and then and then tackle the the housing project next. Sounds good to me. So student debt, then house, then retirement. 
So I, I would I would do the retirement and the student debt concurrently because okay. it, it's going to manage his taxes if they do use the the four hundred one k pre tax benefit as as Bro said so so that'll keep the tax rate down a little bit uh, jumpstart the retirement savings for them but I think they can also do the student loan debt in that same year and then I would do the saving for the house after that. Thanks to Audible for sponsoring today's episode. Audible Channels has a new original series that I think a lot of Motley Fool Answers listeners are going to love. It's called Ponzi Supernova. It has nothing to do with Motley Fool Supernova. It's a six-part series that tells the story you think you know about Bernie Madoff and the largest Ponzi scheme in history. It's drawn from hours of unheard conversations with Bernie from behind bars and interviews with the SEC, FBI, and victims of his scheme. Ponzi Supernova takes you on a fascinating journey into the dark interior of our financial system. To learn more about the series, go to audible.com slash Ponzi. Audible and Amazon Prime members, that's me, listen free. That's audible.com slash Ponzi. Alright, our next question comes from Sean. I'm debating whether to purchase a house and was thinking of taking advantage of being able to withdraw the contributions that I made to my various Roth IRA, Roth 401k accounts. I did the math and I would still be in great shape for my retirement goals. The issue that I am running into is that I have no idea how to find out how much I have actually contributed. I can't find records of my contributions to my Roth IRA before 2007 and I contacted my current brokerage firms and they unfortunately do not have the complete information. Do you have any suggestions? First, let me address the whole idea of using your Roth to pay for a home. So he's talking about how you can put, you can take out the contributions to a Roth IRA, tax and penalty free, anytime. If you have money in a Roth 401k, it's a little different. First of all, your 401k plan may not let you just take out money anytime you want, and if they do, that is actually a combination of the contributions and the earnings. So a little bit of it, assuming you've made some money, will be taxable, and you'll pay a penalty. But you can actually take out a little bit more money from the IRA part as well, because there's something called the first-time home purchase, which allows you to take up to $10,000 of the earnings from a Roth IRA, as long as it's been open for five years, tax and penalty-free. And first-time, by the way, is kind of a funny definition. It just means you haven't owned a home in the past two years. Oh, it's only two years? It's only two years. Oh. Yep. And your spouse can take out another 10000 and you can also do, use it for your kids, your parents, or your grandparents. You know, If you want to help grandma and grandpa buy their first house, you can do it. <laughs> um, so, it's a funny, funny definition of first time. It is a funny <laughs> definition of first time. Um, and I think that $10,000 is a lifetime limit, so if you've used it once before, you can't use it again. I will take Sean's word that his retirement savings are okay, but of course I have to add the disclaimer that generally speaking... We prefer that people don't touch their retirement savings. To and buy a most house. people undersave. Yes, that's true. That's true. No, no offense, Sean. Right. What about his question about his records? Because that's a tough one, and I'll, I will shoot that one. I have some ideas, but I'll shoot that to you because you did work in the brokerage industry. Yeah. So, so the record keeping requirements have changed over the years, and and historically, everything from cost bases to contributions. Uh, it's kind of been on the taxpayer to to keep some of these records, and that's always uh, my argument. Actually, when people want to do after tax IRA contributions, is that you're basically on the hook for keeping track of what your basis is in an IRA forever. 
uh, and considering the number of folks that can't remember their passwords to things <laughs> that they use on a daily basis, it seems very unlikely to me that you keep accurate records for that long of a time. Um, that being said, if you've got enough contributions in the past few years, since you've got the records from 2007 to current, you could have enough substantiated basis to, to say that you can still do uh, your withdrawal, depending on how much you're trying to take out. So, so you don't necessarily need to have the whole history to be able to prove that you've got ten, fifteen thousand dollars, assuming that you've been maxing that out each year. Yeah, and I did think too, if any of the contributions are to the Roth four hundred one k, you will have that information in, in any of your pay stubs or anything like that that you've caught you calculate because each pay stub tells you how much you've put into your four hundred one k. So that might help. In the end, uh, it might be a bit of a crapshoot for him, and he does it, and just sees if the IRS comes calling. The the other way to do it is, is that is really that's going to be your financial advice here. I'm not Go saying, for it. I'm not, maybe I didn't, the IRS will I didn't come say, calling. I didn't not. say do it. I'm just Tremendous saying you might, you might have to. You might be taking that risk. I was just thinking. Well, let's see if he if you put in if he's someone who puts it all in at once, he could probably create a funny little spreadsheet and decide, okay, I put it in at this day, I put it in an S&P 500 index fund, it probably grew. I mean, he could do some back-of-the-envelope calculations if you really wanted to get the, technical, since you're making fun of my answer. The, yeah, because you basically said, here, you could try this, but maybe you'll get I didn't say like, try taken it. to prison by uh, the well, IRS. Well, they're cutting the IRS down, you probably won't get caught. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> what do they know, the IRS? Uh, all right, so Sean's getting audited next week. Sorry, so, Sean. Sorry, Sean. Uh, the other the other place that he could look is, is checking out his tax returns. So so when you make a Roth contribution, that gets reported on your taxes. So if he if he's been a good uh, record keeper on the tax side, but not on the brokerage side, um, that there could be the data there that you could reconstruct. So if he's got his tax returns, he could just be like, look. It's right here. Like that's all he needs. Cor- to correct. Prove. He, he, oh, okay. he, he, like if you if you go through it, you should see the filing amount for how Shouldn't much. Should the government have his old tax returns? Not. I know. I realize I'm trying to remove the onus on me to keep this information, <laughs> but don't don't they have that? No. I mean, it, they they'd reconstruct it for you if they decided they wanted to look hard enough. Okay. All right. Let's move on. This comes from Chris. My wife and I are in our late 30s, and we rent a house. We are starting to look at options for buying a place, and I have some savings available for a down payment, but I'm considering using that money for a used car. My car is over 10 years old and is not well suited for the climate where we live. I'm conflicted about whether or not I should go into short-term debt for the car or get into a mortgage. Chris. Basically, I mean, it sounds like he has some money set aside. Does he use that to buy the car, or does he use it for the home down payment and then take out the loan? And for me, just personally, I hate I hate auto loans because you're borrowing money to buy an asset that quickly depreciates. So for for part of me, that's just the way I I would prefer, and I've, for the most part, the way I've done it. I've bought used cars, so I admire him for doing that, and used cash whenever possible. Ross, what do you think? So so I, I'm again I'm I'm probably. Um, for for financial planners at large, I'm I'm probably the least afraid of debt of anybody that you're you're going to run into. I like leasing cars, honestly. Um, my wife's car, we replace it every three years. It's a depreciating asset, so I'd rather rent it, not own it. Um, so if I was looking for for a place to put my capital, I'd I'd love to buy something that's going to appreciate. Uh, whereas I think of a car as an expense uh, pretty much all the time, and so I because I think of expenses that way of having just a payment and it's fine and I deal with it. I'm comfortable holding on to that. If I can put the asset somewhere that's more productive, let's talk a little bit about how he's talking about he's he's renting a house and the decision of of whether you should buy or not. I mean, first of all, you you look at the differential between what it costs to rent a house versus 
buying house. And if you you start with that, and here in the Washington D.C. area, it's actually if you look at the pure numbers, sometimes it does make sense to, sense to buy a house. It absolutely does in, yeah. in many cases because the the payment on on a comparable property here uh, is is ridiculous, um, and and it keeps rising. That that's the other thing that I do love about owning. Particularly your principal residence. So I'm not uh, very bullish on real estate as an investor. I don't really like uh, the rental property game unless you've got like an edge in it. Uh, but for for locking up your own cost of living, you're already making a rent payment. If you can make that same payment, but but get some equity in the, in the payment that you made, why not do that? Right. The flip side, of course, is that if you are a renter, you there are lots of things you don't have to worry about. You don't have to worry about the property tax. You don't have to worry about the maintenance. And things like that. If, it's you, true. if you look long term, if you were looking at a house as just an investment, historically they they grow at about the rate of inflation. Once you factor in all these other costs, the insurance and everything like that, so I definitely don't look at generally speaking as my house as a great investment. I look at it as a place to live and as a way to to build up equity that can be used as an asset down the road, ideally. Yeah, you're you're, you're spot on with that. So homes typically appreciate at about three to three and a half percent, depending on what what period we're looking at. Uh, and people think it's a, a great wealth building tool, and it is because you're buying it with leverage, typically. Uh, so you're, you know, if we just to throw round numbers out, if you buy a, a five hundred thousand dollar house and you've put a hundred down, and it grows at three percent a year, you're not actually getting. So that that would be about a fifteen thousand dollar a year growth rate, but you're not really growing your five hundred at three percent a year. Right. You're growing the, the hundred you put in, so it feels like a fifteen percent growth rate on the cash you put into it. Um, so, so that leverage effect re- really makes it feel like the home is, is appreciating quickly for you, but the the actual inflation rate on homes is not that high. Got it. So basically, for Chris, by the way, I don't think we gave Chris a definitive answer in terms of building the the down payment for the house or using it for the car. I think we're split, right? I you think were. Say, I think we're split because yeah. my tenants we but. But uh, I mean, so it does sort of depend on how important it is to buy the house because you do need a down payment. So if you're going to do it relatively soon, you do have to keep that cash available. So it is it would be smarter, I guess, to get the loan for the car or lease. It, um, it all it also depends on how bad a shape this car is in. So so ten <laughs> year old car could could be just like hey I don't I don't love it. Uh, he says it's not very well suited for the climate. You know if it, if it's a danger thing or or a matter of getting to work and you don't feel like you can do that safely, I think it makes the car more of a priority because you need to be able be able to still earn your income and and all of that good stuff. So um, it depends how bad the car situation really is. Yeah. Right. Wait, did he bring it? Did he did he convince you? Did Ross convince you? Uh, you no, I was just I, I would I would say uh, the bottom line for it sounded all sounded like of, he almost convinced the you. bottom line for all of these is it depends on your situation and and. and so I we mean, we gotta stop doing answering people's questions. Then, if your answer is always going to be, them, well, it depends. I think we're giving them it depends two sides of the argument. I think we're enlightening them, but in the end, it's their life. You're our, our two-handed instead of a two-handed economist. You're our two-handed personal finance expert. That's right. That's almost all personal finance experts, by the way. <laughs> yeah. just, just in case you were thinking that was unique to this room. All right, let's move on to the next question. It comes from Doran. What are the differences between getting mortgages from a big bank, independent mortgage bankers, and credit unions? Thank you. So, uh, if you were looking at a mortgage broker, a mortgage broker is essentially a middleman, and that he goes out or she goes out and has access to all kinds of lenders. So you can say, "I'm in this situation. I want a mortgage," and they can go to all kinds of banks and lenders and try to find the best deal for you. If you go to a bank, 
you're going to get that bank's option for the most part. So you won't get as many choices, but because they've cut out the middleman, it might be at a lower cost. Yeah, I mean the the big banks in many cases are going to end up buying your loan anyway. That that's mm-hmm. sort of the the source of the money is that most of these mortgage brokers have uh, what's called a warehouse line where they'll basically borrow from a Wells Fargo or immediately sell to a Wells Fargo in the secondary market. And so no matter who does your your loan origination, you know, there's a couple servicers that that normally end up with your loan uh, as it is. Um, but I, I prefer generally somebody that's independent. When when I'm buying anything, whether it's insurance or or something else, uh, I kind of subscribe to the theory that if if you go to a a, a contractor and the only tool they have is a hammer, they're going to find a whole bunch of nails. Yeah. And so if they've only got one product to sell you, they're going to find a reason to make that fit. Uh, where somebody that's got a little bit more flexibility to find the right fit for me, uh, I, I prefer that. But it might be totally psychological, and and I might be paying a little more because of it. But but mortgage rates are generally. I mean, you can find all that information on the internet. It's not like there's this huge discrepancy of information that there used to be, where your banker might have been the only guy that could tell you what mortgage rates were 20 years ago. Yeah, I would say definitely too that if you have a unique financial situation or maybe your credit isn't so good, you might be better served with a broker because they can find a lender who might be more willing to work with you. Um, Question also involved uh, credit unions, and I don't have any particular insight into that other than my anecdotal evidence and my experiences that people at credit unions uh, seem to be more willing to work with you. So, if you're looking for like someone who is very personable and willing to be more of a relationship type of deal, my experience with credit unions has been very good. So, I think that's true definitely on the relationship side. I've actually seen some credit unions with worse rates. Uh, they have yeah. such deep customer loyalty that that people don't shop them as mm-hmm. much as they might a big bank, uh, and so it, and it's not that they were trying to to do something unethical, but they might not refresh their rates as as often as other uh, institutions do on on what they're going to offer. So you might still. And particularly when when rates were falling, uh, not rising as they did today, uh, Fed just took rates up. But um, w- when they were falling, they weren't adjusting down as quickly as some of the more competitive institutions. So, so if if you're a credit union member, it's certainly um, worthwhile to talk with them. But but I would quote them against somebody else as well. Yeah. And at this point, I want to give a shout out to a new aspect of the Motley Fool, the Motley Fool Mortgage Center, which is www.fool.com forward slash mortgages. Um, relatively new part of the Motley Fool, lots of good education about mortgages and also a way to compare rates from various lenders. All right, our final question comes from Robert in Cleveland. I'm 34 years old and I know where I want to retire. I'm considering purchasing an apartment in my retirement city and renting it out. The cost of the mortgage, maintenance, management company, and insurance will exceed the rental income for the foreseeable future, but the difference is something my budget can bear. What do you fools think? There's no chance in changing location, so naysayers need and consider a late-in-life switcheroo. That's a bold statement. Yeah, I, I feel the same way that this guy knows. He is confident. That is, that is strong. That is strong. So, I mean, not only the location, but what kind of house you would want to live in, how big your family is, how many grandkids. Nope. He no knows. chance. No he chance knows. in changing location. So, you don't need to be a naysayer. Okay. All right. Well, I like his name. So, uh, so really, the question then to a degree is is this a good investment? Right. That's what he's asking. Should I buy it now? And, and, and he's saying also that the cost of ownership. Will exceed any money he's going to get from rental income. So basically, it's going to be cash flow negative. Yeah. So he's counting on price appreciation to make up for that, and I—that's not a situation that I would feel comfortable doing. No, I mean the the only way that works out is if the 
the cost of that home ended up being so much higher in the future that locking it in just ended up being just a killer decision. But but that that basically sounds like a cash flow negative investment, as you said, where where it's going to be negative for a long time. You take the risk if something goes wrong in it. Hot water heater goes out, so not only are you out of pocket every month, and now you're going to get a, a big bill. Um, I would much rather put that money somewhere that it's number one more liquid, uh, and and number two at a better growth rate. You know, we touched on the the growth rate of of homes at three point four percent annually if we're looking at the last uh, twenty years or so, uh, and there's there's much better places that you can put that capital, and and over a twenty year period, be pretty confident that that you're going to end up on the positive side. Wow, I don't think Robert's going to like your answer at all. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So what, that was pretty. What that the, was pretty definitive too. That, that wasn't. Was, a, that wasn't that a two-handed was answer. No. Uh, so what, what sort of situation would you think would be okay if it was cash flow even, or obviously cash flow positive? That's that's pretty sweet too. But is that like is it the fact that he's going to be sinking money into this for who knows how long that scares you guys? I just I don't like the idea of anything that is cash flow negative. Yeah, um, and it is more. It is a hassle to do that. To be a landlord, I mean, so if you were just thinking of it as a real estate investment, let's assume he's never going to live in it, and and I said I'm going to put some money into this home, and then I'm going to put more money into it every single month. When do I make a return? I mean, the the home's got to just go bonanza in terms of price appreciation for that to ever work out in his favor. Where and and if let's assume so, he says he's 34. We don't know when he's going to retire, uh, but if we assume that it's at a uh, fairly normal retirement age in in his you know 50s, 60s, he's got 20 years. So so you know a stock investment over a 20 year period, a rolling 20 year period, it's going to be somewhere between let's call it five and and 10 percent annualized, depending on what the period looks like. So so even if it's a poor environment for stocks over the next 20 years, he ends up ahead. Yeah. Sorry, Robert. Sorry. Don't buy the place. Yeah. I don't think we I don't think we need to be sorry. I think it, it, I mean unless he was <laughs> you can like tell from his question that he wanted you guys to say yes, go buy that yeah. house. Yeah. And I will just be curious. Robert, can you email us in thirty years when you've retired and see if you've changed your mind? Yeah. I'm just really curious. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well that's it for the questions. Hopefully you guys found it all helpful. Um as just a reminder, as Ro mentioned, we do have a new place on Fool.com, our mortgage center. So if you're looking for more resources to help you take the right steps in buying a house, you can go to Fool.com slash mortgages. You'll be able to compare mortgage rates. Um, we even have some guides that you can download, yeah. such as to improve your credit score. And there's even some calculators to help you figure out how much house you can afford. And so that website again is fool.com slash mortgages. Ross, thank you for joining us today. Thank you guys so much for having me. Does, is this the first time we've had you on the show? Uh, I had taped an answer for you once before, but it was a little blurb. I hadn't actually been in the studio. Oh, this was really nice having you here. Thanks yeah, thank for, you. Thanks for joining us. Hopefully, I'll get to come back. We, oh, we I will that. have you back. The show is edited hospitably by Rick Engdahl. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Mm-hmm.